Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. It certainly is an eventful week in the news, with public health authorities in the UK scrambling to track down the close contacts of almost 16,000 people that they managed to misplace, while the almost messianic message coming from across the Atlantic is don't be afraid of COVID-19, as the president continues his treatment for the virus away from hospital amid the chaos of the White House looking to get the outbreak within its own halls back under control. Joining me on today's programme on a cool, cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Debbie Perry. Debbie is the CEO of Ballinor Property Management, a holding company for property management services to provide property management services to residential developments comprising apartments, flats and estates. Debbie has been CEO of the group since 2008, the year of its foundation, following a successful tenure at MJ Gleason, where she worked alongside the managing and finance director. During that stint, Debbie decided that she wanted to turn her success into greater success of building, managing and growing her own company. Debbie has since overseen Ballinor's continued growth and has brought the group's companies under one banner during her time at Ballinor Property Management. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome Debbie Perry onto today's programme. Debbie, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme once again. Thank you, everyone, and thank you for asking me. It's a real pleasure um, because it's not, of course, the first time that you've joined us on the uh, the show. The last time, of course, you were with us back in May. We talked in depth about leadership, your take on leadership itself. And we also touched on how uh, Ballina Property Management to be coping with the COVID-19 situation. Now, um, I understand back then that remote working was something that you were very much doing. Um, you were geared up well for that beforehand. And so the transition to working from home was relatively smooth. Um, my question now is that had you ever actually engineered any kind of return to office life before Prime Minister Boris Johnson's U-turn just two weeks ago? Yes, we did um, We did start um, coming back into the office again. But what we, we were doing, we were sort of like um, um, having different times and days when staff were coming in. So rather mm. having everyone in at the same time, we had like um, a couple in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then Tuesdays and Thursdays they worked from home and then the other staff came in those days and sort of vice versa. So we worked it out that way. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, we well, more than a couple of weeks ago, I suppose it is, but we then started um, all coming in, but on a part-time basis. So we're all in Monday, Wednesday, Fridays and working from home Tuesday and Thursday. But we've had to go back since obviously... Um, Boris Johnson's announcement a couple mm. of weeks ago, we've now gone back to spreading the staff again. So we've sort of gone back to where we was when we were in lockdown. Well, just after the lockdown. Mm. 
Um, it makes perfect sense, of course, having that system in place where there are staggered shift patterns to try and minimise the amount of people in the office and in contact with each other um, as well. Um, it is a little bit of a shame that, of course, the return to office life has had to be put on hold because there was quite, um, in my point of view anyway, a, a very good and productive discussion taking place about our working practices in the wake of all of this. Um, there are mental health arguments, of course, Debbie, for both working from home and working in a conventional office space and even when COVID-19 is ultimately no longer an issue hopefully in future when we do have a working vaccine we keep our fingers crossed that that will be the reality can you yourself see the conventional office environment as it was returning in vogue or do you think that there'll be more and more people working from home one or two days a week on a personal basis and we will have this sort of hybrid system that we're seeing now I think on a personal basis, I think staff would be edging to work home from to work from home because when we came back fully into the office, uh, there was a lot of anxiety mm. amongst the staff returning back to work, where they've obviously been working from home full time when the office was completely shut in the beginning. Uh, they were not working from home full time and then having to come back. Um, there was a lot of anxiety amongst staff. Um, so I think they're sort of like quite happy that they're only in the office three days a week and working home from two. But I think if I said to them, I'm going to close the office and you can work from home full time again, I, I think they'll jump at the chance, you know. So uh, I think it has it has definitely affected people. Um I don't think they're comfortable, obviously, going out, you know, with, with it still going around. Mm, can certainly uh, understand that. And um, from the point of view of actually being able to sort of manage that anxiety and also safeguard the mental health and well-being of your employees, just how much of a challenge has that been? It's been, it's been, a, it's been a challenge, I have to say. Um, obviously, um, there's some staff. Once you talk to them and that, and gave them a bit of reassurance, they 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 seemed okay. But there was a couple where a couple of staff, as you know, I tried to reassure them, and obviously, I got all the hand sanitizers and gloves and masks and that in the office. And mm. um, every day we cleanse the office, get the office cleansed. But you know, it, they just you could see they were uncomfortable being back at work. Um, and then obviously that caused sort of like a bit of an awkward atmosphere in the office with the other staff. Um, but we seem to, you know, seem to have got through it. And then sort of like Boris made the announcement two weeks ago, and now obviously we've gone back again because uh, so we're just sort of in back into working back in the office five days a week and. They were uh, coming to take it and getting used to it. And now we're back to being in the mm. office three days and working from home two days. So, yeah, so it, it has certainly been a challenge. Can you see this anxiety being something that lasts for quite some time, even beyond the days where, as we've said already, we hopefully do have a vaccine? Because um, the COVID secure procedures that are there, just because of prolonged sort of anxiety and also reduced consumer confidence in other industries, it could see some of these restrictions um, that are there in the office being in place for some time, even if social distancing is no longer a necessity. It could be something that people adhere to voluntarily, and it may well be the case that they want staggered shift 
shift patterns still and maybe want sort of all of the perspex screens, the one-way systems and the sanitizer stations to stay long-term? Yeah, I think I think that I think that is what they would want to do going forward. Um, and you know, if if not, I think indefinite. You know, because I think a lot of businesses as well since COVID have um, as realised. You know, like it's cut their costs with staff working from home, and could people need an office paying out? You know, rents and commercial rates and business rates um, could they get by without it you know perhaps you know for some companies that could be the way forward they will go is having their office working from home um, it's a bit of a sort of a it's a tough one really because you've got to sort of balance it out mm. see if it is the COVID and them being anxious about being back at work or is it they being like it because they don't want to come to work they want to be at home so you sort of, you know, you have to sort of try and work it out exactly where their mind is and what it is they actually do want um, because, you know, they might just say, oh, can we work from home because they be at home and they're using COVID as an excuse. Mm. You know, I know it's horrible to say, but some people are like that. Um, so it is hard trying to work out if they genuine that they have got the anxiety or is it mm. because they, you know, they just want to work from home. Um, mm. And also as well, it's checking that they are actually working from home as well. Mm. It's all about the productivity um, of that side of things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Making sure that they're yeah. doing the work. Because I have noticed that uh, they seem, you seem to, since being back in the office part-time, that I seem to see that they're doing more work getting more done mm. in the office than what I'm seeing when they're working from home. Because um, we've got our IT guy to um, check the server and they logged on and that and they've logged, you know, they have logged on, but obviously it doesn't mean they're sitting at the desk. And uh, and I notice as well that the emails I get being copied into are less, but when they're in the office, it, it, you seem to get more. So, Mm. Are they actually working? Uh, you know, you're paying them to work, but oh, what, what extent of work are they actually doing working from home? Mm. You can't manage people from home, can you? You know, you can in the office, but you can't manage people from home. Yes, that's the challenge, isn't it? Being able to actually yeah. lead from a distance when it comes to the remote working yeah. side of things, because it's all well and good, of course, the mental health side of the argument, but there also yeah. has to be that productivity guarantee. And albeit some businesses yeah. have found that their workers are more productive at home, it's not always the case. It's not a one size fits all approach. And sometimes it might not be the best one for certain businesses. No, that's right. I think because um, that's what previously saying earlier, you know, it's working out. Um, because some people are, are pleased to be back to work because mm. they felt lonely being at home. Um, and then the people who, who are saying they want to work from home, is it because I'm not there to see them actually what work they do and are they doing their washing, their ironing and they're doing the housework, you know? So, uh, mm. it's, it, you know, it, it is tough for an employer because obviously you've got to be seen as like you know, that you're looking after your staff. But at the same time, you've got to be careful that, um, you know, 
fact, they're not sort of like uh, um, taking advantage. Mm. Such a delicate balance, isn't it, that leaders have to try and yeah. strike during this time. And so often you do hear the phrase that it's lonely at the top. And that has rung so true during this COVID-19 yeah, it, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. employees do want reassurance as well um, from their business mm. executives and leaders yeah. and to be able to be kept motivated. But when you are the one running a business and you feel overwhelmed, there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. The question then is, where do you then look for a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of direction as and when you need it? Um, how has that been yeah. um, from your point of view? Oh, it's been tough because, like, like say, the employee, they can come to the employer um, for reassurance or for advice. Um, but as an employer... We, we don't have anyone to go to um, to just see trust again for reassurance or what we what we're doing and the processes that we've put in place is are they are they you know are they correct or no are we are we being compliant you know it, it, it with with covid it had, for employers it's been very very tough and also you know the financial side of it as well mm. um because I, I wasn't, our business isn't, um, we couldn't put our staff on furlough because, you know, we deal with customers where they ring up and make car payments um, and we deal with like repairs on their properties and that's so if they ring up for an emergency, it has to be dealt with. Um, so I had to keep paying my staff during COVID but I couldn't get any help from the government because I needed them to work. And obviously with furlough, you put them on furlough, but they, they weren't allowed to be seen to be doing mm. work activities. So it has been very tough. Um, so, so yeah, um, going forward, I think they, if I remember rightly, I think I read that um, they were looking to sort of like where you can put furlough staff part-time. Mm. And uh, the employer pays twenty percent of the wages, and uh, the government put the rest towards it. So that you know that could be food for thought because you know where where people still working from home. You know you could get I could get by with staff working part time. So fingers crossed, I might be able to get a bit of support going forward. But until then. I've literally had haven't had any any financial support. Mm. It is a delicate balance that the government's had to strike and they've come under a lot of criticism um, for um, certain elements of their um, strategy to dealing with the crisis. But the support they have put yeah. in place, of course, has safeguarded a lot of businesses. But there are some that have fallen through the cracks, like yourselves up until this point. But of course, the replacement for the furlough scheme could now be something that could well certainly um, accommodate. Um, given the um, sort of media spotlight around what the government has done when it comes to sort of leadership generally do you think it is as appreciated and celebrated as perhaps maybe it should be in this country um no i don't think it is actually in fairness um and that's because, i don't think uh, um, I think as leaders, like as leaders, and that I don't think we've been recognised mm. 
for what we've had to go for the what we've had to go through and the and the tough challenges we've had to face. Um, you know, because of our, cause the staff come to us for reassurance. You know, we we struggle, but we have to put the brave face on and look look like we're not worried to your employees. Um, and I don't think you know the government realise what us leaders have been through with COVID, like with not only with like health for family and staff, but also as well the stress of it all and um, trying to juggle everything and keeping everyone, making sure everyone's okay and safe. So, um, so no, I, don't, I honestly don't think we have been recognised for it. It's very difficult even in the everyday world of running a business to sort of take a moment to switch off, let alone during a crisis like this. And it can be a significant challenge having to sort of take mm. a step back and take stock for a moment, can't it? And mm. mentally, it's it's very, very taxing for somebody who's in a position of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's tough, like, you know, for, for people who, who, who are self-employed in COVID because obviously if they didn't get work, they got, didn't, if they didn't work, they didn't get paid. Mm. But at least the government was, you know, they gave the self-employed some sort of financial support, but it's just them. Whereas with us leaders, you know, we we have employees we've got to think about, um, and we've got to take them into consideration. It's not like we're, you know, you're a one-man band, and it's only you you've got to consider. But as leaders, you know, you you've got other people you've got to put before yourself, and uh, and it was it's very it was very hard. Like you know, to switch off because you're constantly having to watch the news, listen to the uh, Boris Johnson's announcement to see if it affects your work, your employees. Um, so you know, it was it was really really tough and stressful. And just reflecting on the experience that you've had over the last few months, is there anything that you would say in your leadership role that you've learned from having this experience of crisis management? Uh, take one step at a time and take each day at a time. Um, I learned because I, I was I was sort of really worrying um, about things, about the business and we got through it and I and I needn't have worried as much as I did. Mm. Um and I think each day, deal with it each day and tackle any any barriers each day rather than worrying about something that might ne- not necessarily happen. Um, that's, you know, that's what I've, what I've learned. Um, mm. And it does make perfect sense. And it does make perfect sense, that approach for sure. And the reason I say that is because what we have seen is that there isn't necessarily a long term that businesses can be proactive toward and plan for anymore because guidelines and circumstances can so quickly change. The long term is no longer months and years. It's now weeks and sometimes days in fact so you can't really plan any more than three weeks ahead and it's all about reactivity at the moment as opposed to proactivity yeah, yeah well that that because that's where I'm, that's what i mean by you know take take each day as it comes because mm. 
uh, you know, because you look at the increases in, in the COVID cases in the last few days, and, uh, you know, it could be um, five set walls for today, and then he could do another announcement tonight, and it could be something else tomorrow. So I think that's all you've. I think that's all we can do at the moment. Is just take each day, take each day at a time, and deal with it as and when, as and when, rather than sitting there and worrying about something that may not happen. And mm. you, you, you know, you, which you can make yourself feel over. So. Uh, um, and I've learned as well, it's, it's, it's another thing is as well with COVID, you know, it makes you realise as well um, that your health comes first. Um, because, you know, if, if if I stressed and worried and made myself ill, that's no good and I've not done any favours for the employees with me being like that. Mm. Because, you know, we, we, we as leaders, we have to stay strong, strong for them. Because mm. obviously they look they they look up to us, so um, so that was the big in, the biggest learning curve for me is don't worry or not like, worry but don't spend all your time worrying about it um, and just just deal with just see what happens each day. And although I do know that we are taking it one day at a time, and crystal balls is certainly something that we don't have at the moment, but. In sort of according to your own gut instinct, uh, Debbie, where do you see the property management industry going as a result of the ongoing COVID nineteen situation as it stands? I think if it, if it if I think if it the longer it goes on, I think it will start to um, affect us financially because obviously the the, the owners of the properties. Um, are not going to be able to sort of like have the funds to contribute paying towards their service charges, mm. um, which they pay towards like the cleaning and gardening of the communal areas, their block buildings insurance. Um, and if they don't pay their service charges, you know, we're not going to be able to pay the cleaners and the gardeners, so we're going to have to tell them to stop working. So, it, it, you know, it affects so many different businesses mm. and um, and then obviously the developments are going to look run down because there's going to be no contractors maintaining it um, I, so I, I can see if it, the longer it goes on I can see it's in the property management industry it's going to affect a lot of people mm. I mean touch wood at the moment we've not the residents have not rung up to say they can't afford to pay towards the service charges. So touch wood, it's, you know, it's business as usual. But if it carries on, and I think once it's, once the furlough is over, I think we're, we're going to see a lot more redundancies out there. Mm. And then obviously that's when it's going to start affecting people. And so, uh, the worry is the domino effect, as you say there, isn't it? Uh, the fact that they no longer have an income and for a period of time while they find alternative yeah. employment, there could well be that problem. Yes, yes. And also as well, going forward, are other, other, other employees going to be recruiting? Mm. Um, because if they've had to, unfortunately, be in a situation where they've had to sort of like make staff redundant, you know, they might not be in a position to... To recruit, so at the moment, touch wood, we're not affected. 
started, but I think the longer COVID goes on, I honestly think it's going to be a long road ahead for everyone. Mm. And we can only um, hope at this point in time that we're not going to be sort of locked into this period of stasis for too much longer. But of course, according mm. to what the Prime Minister said two weeks ago, it could well be until the spring at least. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, he, he reckons it's going to, well, he predicted, didn't he, that it's going to be like it for at least another six months. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's going to be a long road ahead because I think if I if I remember correctly, read, not reading and listening, I think the furlough schemes is due up soon. I think it's this month, and mm. obviously where the companies out there have been getting financial support where they put staff on furlough after the when the furlough's finished and they're not getting that financial support, you know, are they going to then start making redundancies? And as a result of the impact of COVID on the um, economy um, and also on employers, there are a lot of young people also who are now out there that are probably feeling very downhearted about what it's done for their employment prospects. So as obviously a business leader yourself, um, for those young aspiring leaders and entrepreneurs that are out there, do you have any sort of message of support to get them to pick up their heads and start on the road to success? Yeah, don't give up. Carry on. Um, it might it probably be a bit of a roller coaster journey, up and down, up and down. Um, you you might have barriers barriers in the way along the way, mm-hmm. um, and you know, keep your head up, carry on. And one thing I would say, which I've learned over the years, is learn learn by your mistake. Don't give up. If you make a mistake, don't give up. Mm. Just Pick yourself up, brush yourself down, learn from it, and carry on. And you'll, 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 you know, you'll, you'll, it'll make you stronger along the way. Um, but it, it, it's not going to be easy. It will be tough. But please keep going, um, and hopefully the future will be bright. And that persistence and that ability to learn and keep improving, that is fundamentally what leadership itself is all about as well. So I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. Um, Mm. Moving on um, ever so slightly from the ongoing COVID situation, I understand at this point in time, Debbie, there is another barrier that is affecting you and leaseholders in the form of Mm. EWS1 certificates, which first came about following the Grenfell Tower fire. And as a result of that, we're now seeing lenders not providing mortgages or remortgages without one of those certificates being obtained and that's throwing up some significant issues for both the likes of yourselves and leaseholders too yes it's uh i say you know having to deal with covid and now the ews one it you know that's a big challenge in itself because there doesn't seem to be any clarity about the EWS one. It's only sort of like where where um, residents are either selling their property or remortgaging. Um, this is only on um, blocks of flats, not houses. It doesn't affect houses, but mm. it's the people who live in apartments um, and where they've tra- where they've put the properties up to sell or remortgaging. The lenders are not lending until you get this EWS one form. Well, they call it a form, but it's a certificate, and uh, um, and obviously, you know, it, it it's stopping them from moving, um, and uh, residents, owners, and that are saying, you know, like they feel like prisoners in their own home. Um, 
there's no clarity on who should pay for this EWS one form because um, uh, the owners, they own the property, but it's the freeholders who own the building. Mm. And the EWS one is on the building, not the owner's property. So uh, it's not the EWS one isn't for the individual apartments that are up for sale. It's for the whole block. So if you so, in my eyes, if it's the whole block, it's the building. Mm. The freeholders should be the ones who've got to pick up the cost for the EWS one. Um, not the owners, because it's on the building. Um, there's not many, um, they, they say as well that you've got to have um, uh, a qualified um, structural engineer to do the report. Um, there's not many, many out there who are qualified to do the EWS. So mm. it's, not a, it's not a competitive market. Um, I've had one block where it's under 18 metres high because when I looked on the, the on the Rick's website, it said under the under 18 metres high it's not required. And uh, but the lenders won't lend it. They, it doesn't matter whether it's on the ground floor. Like there's no height to the blocks of flats. The EWS ones required. You know there's. If you live in a flat, you've got to have this form, otherwise they're not lending the money. So I think the government needs to put a bit of clarity on um, if it's only up to... Because some, some of the builds we've got are only a year old as well. So and it, an EWS is required on it because the lenders are just not lending. So I think that... Look, the government needs to put a bit of clarity on it. You know, it's only if it's certain certain stories or certain height of the building, and I think it should be on the age as well, of, uh, on the age of the building as well. Um, obviously, if it's an old block of flats, then yes, I can understand because you know it could have. You know, it, they were probably built in the days when asbestos was around, um, but the newer new builds. Um, I, I don't think it should be required because obviously they have to get passed on the NHBC on the uh, building standards before they can sell. That, that you know they've got to get their approval. Um, but one development there's an owner trying to sell, and we've had we found a structural engineer and done a report, and the report they got the report and just for, just for them to look at the building, um, it's. Fourteen thousand nine hundred and fifty-five plus VAT, um, and if the report comes back that works need to be carried out, there's extra money on top of that. And you think if you've got a block of flats with only ten flats in it, and that, and each owner has got to split that amount between them, or it, it, they're not going to be able to afford to do that. Um, mm. It's a problem, so, isn't it? It's a big problem. Yes, of course. They, you know, we, we they're ringing us saying you, you, you should, you should pay it. Well, no, because we don't own the building. It's not our building. We just manage it on your behalf. You know, we're not liable. Um, and of course, you know, like we get frustrated. 
residents, you know, get, get shouting down the phone and that because they can't sell their property. All the buyers drops out. And, um, and I had a read as well. I've been reading about it and, and they say it can, you know, it can take up to 10 years for it to get before the certificate and that is actually issued. Um, and the certificate, when it is issued, it's only valid for five years. So in five years' time, you, you, after the five years, they've got to go through it all again. Um, I can understand why they're doing it. I totally understand why they're doing it. But I just think they need to put a bit of clarity on it. Who's who's responsible for it? Mm. The, the landlords or the leaseholders. And, and uh, I think it should be over a certain age of a building and over 18 metres high um, because there's some buildings out there you know that don't need it but because the lender because the government is saying the EWS one is it's to show the, the certificate is to show that the building's safe the lenders are thinking well it doesn't matter how old the building is what size it is we're not lending until they until you get that certificate. So our hands are tied, and the poor residents, you know, they, they they're stuck. They've got to stay where they are because they can't move. Mm. Um, so that is a that's a huge huge problem for us at the moment, and I'm sure we're not alone with this because obviously, you know, it, I should think it's affecting the state agents agents as well. You know where. Mm potential buyers pull out, you know, because of it. So, And then, obviously, you know, they're not selling the property, so it's got to be affecting a lot of businesses with this with this EWS one. Mm. But um, a bit of clarity and um, would be would be good um, because, I mean, it was, it, it's quite... Um, it's quite enlightening as well that because, obviously, we deal with when the residents put their property up for sale, we deal with the uh, buyers and the sellers solicitors um, because they ask us for information like a copy of the block building insurance and are the residents in arrears for their service charges because the service charges remain on that, the debt of the service charges remains on the property, not the owner. So any potential buyers want to make sure they're not going to be liable for any outstanding money. And uh, when I said about the EWS form, they knew nothing about it. They, they hadn't even been told about it. They wasn't made aware about it. Um, and uh, uh, I did a I did a webinar at the EWS one, and I sent the solicitor one of the solicitors. I sent them uh, the recording from it. And until then, they knew nothing about never knew nothing about the EWS one form. So, uh, and that shocked me to be fair, because you think. Uh, being in the legal system, and that 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 they would be, they would know about it, because that was the reason why I mentioned it. Because I was ask, I was asking them a question about it. You know, what do you think? And I said, EWS. What's an EWS? <laughs> and uh, and I, I was quite amazed at that. So um, because it's not, it's not actually been. There's no publication about it. There's not much about it at all out there. All we know is that the lenders are not lending money. So it would be good if the government could put a bit more clarity on it.
Mm, certainly is a lot to consider and I think as you rightly say it's probably going to be a problem that comes to light a lot more as more and more businesses begin to be affected by it now yeah. Um, yeah. I am conscious um, certainly Debbie that our time on the program is beginning to draw to its close but just before we do wrap things up um, back during our last conversation in May I understand that you said you wanted in 12 months time for your business Ballina Property Management to be operating as it is now with a fully intact team um, obviously just maybe a couple of months into that time frame um, is it looking like you're heading toward that goal now yeah we are slowly but we're going in the right direction um, you know our, at the moment I can see you know that we're going to be we're going to be okay and we are going to progress but it, at the moment it's, it's small steps um, and it also depends as well on COVID and mm. any other rules that Boris Johnson implements. But um, we're going in the right direction, touch wood at the moment. Mm. That's certainly encouraging to uh, to hear, Debbie, for sure. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you that that will continue to be the case. We are just about out of time on the programme today, but I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you back onto the show. And I think it would be great to perhaps catch up once again in future just to see how things are coming along and just understand just to what extent things have changed again in the time between we've spoken. Yes, it'll be a pleasure. And uh, thank you inviting me again it's always wonderful debbie to have a very regular guest on the show it's, it would be wonderful indeed to welcome you back on again um, and hopefully there will be some more positive news to share then as well and hopefully some action on the ews1 issue were uh, to come for sure that'd be good <laughs> it certainly would wouldn't it thank you ever so much once again debbie for joining us and do as i say take care and stay safe with everything uh, still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with covid19 yet but let's just quietly hope that we're not going to be in this rut for too much longer no, let's hope so. And, and thank you. And, and you stay safe and take care as well. I would reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Debbie Perry, CEO of Ballina Property Management, onto today's programme. I do hope that all of you enjoyed the interview and learning more about how the whole team at Ballina Property Management is continuing to raise standards even throughout this most difficult time. Coming up next on today's programme, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. Here it is now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. He has the experience. He has the professionalism. He has the forensic uh, mindset. And he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I have been your host, Scott Challoner, and I do hope that you have all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be occupying my usual corner inside the Westminster Arms and raising a glass to raising standards. And I'll be making sure, of course, that I'll be out of the doors by 10pm. Remember, please be considerate of others and continue to look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.